you have your Bible, I want to go ahead and encourage you to be turning with me to the third chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, I want to continue in our study of this book of the New Testament. And as you're turning there, you know, one of the reasons for preaching and teaching, and one of the reasons that we need to regularly and systematically be under the, uh, the exposition of the Scriptures is so that we can be put in remembrance of basic truth that we tend to forget. Basic Christian doctrines that we just tend to forget or begin to take for granted. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 6, the Apostle Paul told his young protege, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Not too many verses later, he tells him to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And then in 2 Timothy 2.14, he told Timothy to remind believers of certain things. So there's this sense in which we need to regularly be reminded of the truth and built up in the truth. And of all the Christian doctrines that the devil would love for you and I to dismiss or forget, or downplay in importance, none is more serious than the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin has all but been lost on modern sensibilities. Uh, a couple years ago, I read a book by a guy by the name of Cornelius Platinga, but the name of the book was uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it's basically just a treatment on the doctrine of sin. But in the preface of that book, Platinga says this. He says, we must retrieve an old awareness that has slipped and changed in recent decades. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared sin, fled from sin, grieved over sin. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still receive communion. Or a woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. And nowadays, the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. And so, the doctrine of sin is one of those doctrines that perhaps has fallen on hard times in the context of a modern society, it's come under redefinition. It's often downplayed, outright denied. And the notion of loving people enough to confront them with their sin, this is lost on a world that's increasingly rejected this three-letter word. And someone who said a whole lot about this is Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president at Southern Seminary. A couple years ago, he wrote this. He said, the disappearance of sin from our moral vocabulary is one of the hallmarks of the modern age, even of postmodern morality. These days, most people think themselves to be imperfect, leaving room for improvement, but they do not think of themselves as sinners in need of forgiveness and redemption. And just to use as an example, when someone says to another person, what you're doing is sin, a person is more prone to respond in this way. Who are you to judge me? And more than likely, they're not going to understand it as loving them enough 
to point out their destructive behavior. And so now you add to that the view of the culture that says tolerance demands I accept every idea and every behavior as legitimate, and the result is that sin is one of those words that has been removed from our cultural lexicon. Now, I've said all that to simply say the passage of Scripture that we're going to begin looking at this morning from 1 John 3, the Apostle John deals with this issue of sin. And really from the end of chapter 2 through the third verse of chapter 3, John has affirmed that believers are born of God, and as such, they are God's children. He said that the practice of righteousness serves as evidence that someone is a child of God. Well, beginning in verse 4, he's going to show his readers that being a child of God is incompatible with the habitual practice of sin, and the two simply do not go together. Now, I will say this uh, to sort of preface my message this morning. These verses that are going to be under our consideration have perhaps been the most debated and misunderstood in all of those, in all of those verses in 1 John. And some have even tried to make it a proof text for perfectionism, this idea that Christians can attain a level of sinless perfection in this life. I've met some people who thought they were perfect, but I've never met anybody who was perfect. We're all in process being perfected. And, and, and the reason for some of this confusion in this passage, it stems from the fact, really, that older translations didn't translate the present continuous verb tense of the verbs here in the passage. So a surface reading of this, it would seem to suggest that a Christian man or woman cannot sin if you read older translation. Now, is this what John is saying in this passage? Well, we know from experience something different. So it's of utmost importance that we really understand what John is saying to believers within this passage. As those who've come to trust in Christ we know that we've been delivered from the grip of sin. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. And yet, we also know that salvation has resulted in spiritual conflict between the power of Christ's indwelling righteousness and that old tendency towards sin, or what the Scripture calls the flesh. Now, let's read beginning with verse number 4. Notice that John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. So someone would say, well, older translations might translate verse 4 this way, everyone who sins. And yet, the Greek tense of the verb there is in the present tense, active voice. What John is referring to is a habitual lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of of unbroken, unrepentant sin. That's what he's referring to here. Verse 5, you know that he appeared, that is Christ, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, or righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And we'll stop reading there. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the reason the Son of God appeared. The reason that the Son of God appeared. John is clear in this paragraph when he tells us that Christ appeared to do away with sin, to take away sins. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, by way of context, within the opening verses of chapter 3, John has called upon believers to live a life of righteousness and purity that's grounded in the hope of Christ's second coming. And so now in verse 4 and the verses that follow, he's issuing this same challenge, albeit it's based upon the first coming of Jesus and what he accomplished. He says in verse 5 that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. That's why he came in the first place. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so taken together, here's the idea that John wants us to understand, that if Christ first appeared both to take away sin and to destroy the devil's work, and when he appears a second time, we will see him and be like him, then here's the logic. How can we possibly go on living in sin as those who claim to know him and as those who claim to have hope in him? Because to do so would be to deny both purposes of his appearings. It would be to deny his lordship. Now listen, why is this important? It's important because there's a lot of people who profess to know Christ, but it's evident by way that they live their life that they've not come to possess his righteousness. So the first and second comings of Jesus serve as bookends to motivate us to walk just as he walked. That's something that John says back in verse 6 of chapter 2. It's incentive for us to love our brother, all within the context of the family of faith. That's something he says in verse 10 of chapter 3. So keep in mind that John's overall purpose in writing is to give believers real assurance of their salvation. Uh, we know that because he says as much in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So John wants believers to have assurance of their salvation. Now keep in mind what the believers in John's day were confronted with. There were those who had went out from the churches who were claiming to be Christians, yet their doctrine and their lifestyles was contrary to the claims of the gospel. Their cavalier attitude towards sin was a dead giveaway that they had not truly come to know the Lord. Sin was their habitual practice, something that John says is not in keeping with true salvation. And it's these whom John has in mind in these verses. He's basically saying, listen, 
uh, no matter what a person says, if there's no practice of righteousness in that person's life, regardless of what they say, it's evidence, it's a dead giveaway that they've not truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His saving power. In the notes of his study Bible, David Jeremiah provides a helpful insight. Uh, he says this is one of the more difficult sections of Scripture, primarily because every Christian struggles with sin daily. And you and I can identify with that statement. John knows this too. He explains that process early on in the letter. You go back to chapter 1 on into the first few verses of chapter 2, and, and John's talking about the struggle that believers have with sin, even within the Christian life. How good it is for us to know that uh, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. How wonderful it is for us to know that he says, hey, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John is, is not saying here in chapter 3 that Christians can't sin. No, he's already dealt with that earlier in the epistle. But within this paragraph in chapter 3, John discusses the habitual practice of sin, not the struggle with sin. He's combating false teachers or Gnostic teachers because they did not believe that sin was a problem. They bought into, into this idea that, you know what? Jesus takes away sin. If Jesus died for sin, then that means I can now live any way that I want to live my life. And the fact that they want to continue living in sin is proof that Christ hasn't taken away their sin. <laughs> but you see, the issue is when you come to know Jesus Christ in the power of the gospel, the power of saving faith, and the power of the indwelling life of Christ comes to live within you, there will be holy hungers within you produced by the indwelling life of God. You'll not be perfect, but man, you'll sure want to be. You want to be obedient. And when you do sin, the Spirit of God convicts you so that you can confess that sin and continue on in the walk of faith. So believers struggle with sin because it's alien to the new nature that they've received. Unbelievers are blind to sin, lost in sin. They're held in the grip of sin. And so the point then that John is making in this text is inescapable. He says that sin has no place in the Christian life. There must be a holy hatred of sin in the believer's life. And notice when I say a holy hatred for sin, I'm talking about my sin personally. <laughs> that which offends God, that in my own life which I know is an offense to a holy God, I hate that. I want to... I want to love him, I want to serve him, I want to be like him in every way. And so evidence of the life of God dwelling within you will be the habitual practice of righteousness, not the habitual practice of sin. And that's what John is really driving home in this passage. So to have this cavalier attitude towards sin is to misunderstand the purpose of redeeming grace. Now, one of the criticisms that's been leveled against the doctrine of eternal, eternal security or once saved, always saved. One of the criticisms is that it fosters this cavalier attitude towards sin. 
Now, some folks have a hard time coming to grips with the fact that you can't lose your salvation because a person assumes that if you can't lose your salvation, then, then what about all those folks out there who are living unrepentant, sinful lifestyles, but they're claiming grace in the process? They're using grace as an excuse to try to justify the way that they, well, I've prayed the prayer. Uh, you know, I was saved when I was five, six, seven years old. Things are okay between me and God, and yet there's no change of life that's ever been demonstrated in their life. You know, Paul deals with this same thing in Romans 5, 6, and 7, and 8, does he not? Where he deals with this issue of sin and the fact that, you know, sin is an offense. It's a terrible offense. We all inherited a sin nature because of Adam that's been passed down to every generation. Every person is born in sin, has a sin nature. But thank God for the redeeming grace of the gospel through Jesus Christ. To be in Jesus Christ is to be saved. It's to be justified. It's to be forgiven. And justification is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And then Paul follows that up with this argument. He says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound all the more? Let's just sin so God can be gracious all the more. No, he says, God forbid and here's his argument. How can we who died to sin live in sin any longer? And that's the same thing that John is saying here in chapter 3. So where there is birth, there is life, there will be progress. And so John groups his thoughts along three lines of argument. Uh, he, he explains the problem of sin and its incompatibility with the Christian life. He's pointing his readers to the provision of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. But then he's talking about the possession and the practice of righteousness in the life of a true believer. And so John wants us to understand, here's why Christ came in the first place. The reason that the Son of God appeared. What's the reasoning? What's the reason? Well, notice number one, he appeared to deliver me from my sin. John says that Christ appeared so that I can be delivered from my sin. So according to what the apostle says here, genuine Christianity can't escape dealing with this issue of sin. The gospel will not allow any evasion of sin as the universal human condition. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, man's problem is not environmental. Contrary to what so much of, of man's wisdom will say, well, if man could just have a different environment, man could behave differently, man could be different. No, man's problem is not environmental. But man's problem is not a matter of his education. If we could just give man a better education, then all of his problems would disappear. With No, his problem's not educational in nature. It's not environmental in nature. His problem is spiritual in nature. And the Bible says that sin is humanity's problem, and sin has resulted in alienation from the Creator. So one of the first things we need to understand is that sin is inherent to fallen humanity, and it's true of humanity because of Adam's original transgression. His nature's now been passed down to his descendants. All of humanity is in Adam by means of physical birth, which means all you had to do to be a sinner was just be born. <laughs> 
All of us have received Adam's sinful nature. You're a sinner by virtue of being born. You don't just become a sinner at some point in your life. David says this in Psalm 51. He says, I was conceived in sin. Scripture says we go astray from the womb. There's something within. It, it, so it's, it's, it's our nature. And it doesn't take long for us to make sin a choice. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. And so notice a couple of things here. Uh, notice first how John establishes a universal fact. There's a universal fact that's being laid down in verse number four. Uh, the apostle says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You ought to underline that word everyone in the verse because it's a reminder how no one is off the hook. It calls to mind what uh, the Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who sins breaks the law. And so there's a definition of sin that's found within verse 4, uh, and the definition is this, sin is lawlessness. Now, you know in actuality, the Bible uses a variety of words to define what sin is. Oftentimes, if you were to try to define sin or you ask someone, what is sin? What does it mean to sin? More often than not, that definition will be some type of immoral action. And so we tend to associate sin with sins. But the reason that there are sins is because sin is the fundamental issue. That word sin that's used in the verse is the most common word used for sin throughout the New Testament translates a word that means to miss the mark, to miss the target. It defines sin as failure to live up to God's holy and perfect standard. Someone says, what's the standard? Well, here's the standard, Leviticus eleven fourteen: be holy for I the Lord am holy. So what's the moral standard? Is it the best person that I know in my life, my sphere of influence? No, that's not the standard. Is it the standard that's laid down by society around me? Is that the standard? That's not the standard either. The standard is God's perfection. The standard is God's holy. So if you are not as holy as God is holy, then you've missed the mark. Has nothing to do with relative goodness, but everything to do with absolute holiness. It's not about being better than the next man. You can always find somebody worse off than you are. This is about perfect holiness. That's the standard. And the Scripture says that all have sinned. All have missed the mark. All fall woefully short of that standard. You know, there are other words used in the New Testament to define sin. You've got words like trespass, which means to step across. It's how uh, it illustrates the fact that sin is going over the line. Sin steps over the line that God himself has laid down. The word transgression is a word that means we lack self-control uh, necessary to stand on our own two feet morally means we kind of get swept away by impulse. It points to our inability 
And so the idea is we're weak, we're powerless, we're unable to live up to God's perfect standard. And then you've got another word. It's the word that John uses there in verse 4 when he says sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. It's a word that means breaking the law. It's rebelling against God. It's setting aside the refusal of His authority. It's disregard of God's rightful rule over your life. And this, the Bible says, is the primary disposition of every sinner. A man argues or stands against God's law because he wants to go his own way. He wants to be his own sovereign. He wants to be his own Lord. And so listen, all of this should really just help you see the seriousness of our condition. Sin is missing the mark. It's stepping over the line. It's rebellion against God. It's lawlessness that wants to act as its own God, its own boss, and it's all an insult to God's glory. Now listen to this, folks. This is the seriousness of the condition which is universal to humanity without exception. Without exception. And all of this has led, really, it's led humanity to incur this massive debt against God. That's another word that's used in the New Testament. It's the word used in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. Sin is a debt against God. So you think about all of the stepping across the line in your life the moral rebellion in your life, the going your own way in your life, all of that means that you've incurred this massive debt against God that must be paid. And yet, we have nothing in our bank account with which to pay that debt. And someone says this makes it sound extremely hopeless for humanity. And that's the point, men and women. That's what the law of God's intended to do. It's intended to show us how desperately in need we are of a Savior. So this is the universal fact that's established. It's laid down here in the text. And when you think about this, All of this sets up the situation with everything that's wrong in the entire world because sin is what affects every human relationship. Every human problem that exists between people ultimately stems from the sin problem. It stirs up chaos at every human level, whether it be at the individual level, whether it be in a marriage between a husband and a wife, whether it be at the employer-employee level among co-workers, whether it's among nations and where you have the greed and the ambition of nations to want to go to war with other nations over resources and all this kind of stuff. Where does all that come from? Where do wars and conflicts come from among you? Do they not come from those desires which are found in your members? That's what James says. Something within humanity. And there's nothing in this world, there's no law that could ever be laid down to change a person from the inside out. What man needs is a Savior. He needs to be saved from sin. So sin dominates the mind. It dominates the will. It dominates the emotions. It dominates the affections. And sin keeps fallen humanity in this domain of darkness under the tyranny of the devil. And if left 
to its awful course, it will send every soul to hell. And we are incapable to do anything about it. But you know something? I'm so glad that John doesn't stop right there. Because I'm so glad that he goes on to say what he does in verse number 5. Yes, there's this universal fact that's established. But look at, look at this fundamental truth then that's explained in verse 5. You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So God has done something in answer to the sin problem. What is it that God has done? He sent his own son into the world. And the reason that Christ appeared was to take away sins. The reason that Christ appeared was to pay the debt. The reason that Christ appeared was to do for me what I could not do for myself. Now, you pay close attention to the previous verse uh, or paragraph. You go back up, you'll see that John has referred to the appearing of Christ as something that the Christian's looking forward to. For example, verse 28, he says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. So the, the second coming of Jesus is intended to be an incentive for believers as God's children now. And then he says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now look at the motivation and the incentive that this is to have on my life. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him or everyone who possesses this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. That means we'll live in a certain way in light of the return of Christ. So, so John is referred to the second coming of Christ in terms of the ethical implications that it has for our lives as believers. The true sign that you're waiting for his appearing, it's not a prophecy chart. It's a holy life. It's obedience. And so my life then illustrates my hope. And that's the way that it always is for a person. Because whatever you put your ultimate hope in, that's what you will obey it's what dominates your thoughts. It affects the way you use your time, your money, your resources. And John says everyone who places their ultimate hope in Christ and his appearing purifies himself as he is pure. That is, he's deeply concerned with obedience to his master. So that's in keeping with the purpose for which Christ came in the first place. And that's what John is referring to here in verse 5. In his first appearing, he appeared for a very specific reason. And that reason was to take away sins. So it's almost as if John's kind of working backward here in the text. To take away, this means to bear up. It means to carry or to remove He's saying that Jesus came to bear our sins. Jesus came to take away our sins. Jesus Christ came to remove our sins. And it calls to mind what was said by John the Baptist as he saw Jesus coming to be baptized. Uh, John chapter 1. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the same word. Takes away the same truth that was spoken by the angel Gabriel to Joseph, telling him that Mary would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. 
So it's only by means of His death in the place of sinners that Jesus takes away sins. He came to provide full and free salvation to all who would trust in Him. But see, you've got to pay close attention to that last phrase there in verse 5 where John says, and in Him there is no sin. In other words, he could only do what he did because he is who he is. If he were a sinful Savior, he couldn't take away my sin. If he were anything less than a perfect, holy, righteous Savior, he couldn't take away my sin or your sin. That's why there's so much emphasis placed all throughout the Old Testament on on the nature of sacrifice and the fact that whether it be a lamb or a bull or whether it be a goat, it had to be without blemish. Why? Because only a perfect sacrifice can atone for sin. That's the message that's laid down by by means of picture and illustration all throughout the Old Testament, and it points us forward to the one true sacrifice of the Lamb of God who came to offer up Himself as a perfect sacrifice in my place and in your place. So His sinlessness is what qualified Him to be our sacrifice. Now, folks, listen to this. John is not saying here that Christ appeared primarily to give the world a good example. He's not saying that Christ appeared primarily to be a good teacher. Was he a good example? Absolutely. He was perfect. Was he a good teacher? Absolutely. He's God in human flesh. But he didn't appear for the purpose of simply giving man an example. John says that Christ appeared to take away sins, which means that the cross is central to the message of the gospel. You take away the cross, you diminish the cross, you empty the cross of its power, you have no gospel. And that's why the doctrine of sin is so important, because it helps us understand just why the gospel is such good news. You come into worship every Sunday, and behind me, there on the wall, you see that massive instrument of death. That's not an emblem. It's not just simply a religious jewelry piece. It's not just a decorative wood carving. It's a reminder of the depth of your depravity and the need that you have of the saving grace of God in your life. And this is why... It's the message of the cross, which is the offense of the gospel. It's not so much the ethical teachings and the moral example of Jesus that the world is offended by. No, it's the bloody cross of Jesus. Because it's the message of the bloody cross of Jesus Christ that puts every person in a corner and bears witness against them that they are a sinner in need of the grace of God. It's an offensive thing to think that an innocent man would suffer and die in such a horrendous way for a guilty man like me. And sin within me wants to rise up against that notion and say, no, I'm my own boss. I can pull myself up by my own moral bootstraps. I can do this thing. I can live a righteous life. I can be a morally perfect person. And you know what? If I can't, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just redefine sin in my life and set myself up as my own judge, my own boss, and my own authority. And that, my friend, is why the Bible says sin is lawlessness. It's characteristic of our age. 
It will be characteristic of the Antichrist when he arrives on the scene, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. But that spirit's already at work in the world. One final thing, and I've got to close with this. My time is gone, but there's a logical conclusion that's expressed. This this fundamental fact, it's laid down. This wonderful truth there in verse 5 that Jesus appeared to take away sin, that leads to this conclusion in verse 6. Now listen to this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So the logic which follows is this. If Christ appeared to take away sins, then he must obviously stand in opposition to sin. And John says that it's inconceivable that someone who hopes for the appearing of Christ is at the same time persisting in sin, which is rebellion against the very one he's hoping for. (laughs) You see the logic there? So the evidence that you're truly hoping in Christ, the evidence that you're truly found in Christ will be the fact that he's taken away your sin and that you're now pursuing obedience to him. He's your Lord. He's your master. He's the one you've come to place all of your hope and all of your trust in. So just let these words sink in and do their work in your life. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who truly is found in him will make sin the habitual practice of their life. They won't make excuses for sin. They won't seek to justify their sin. They won't minimize their sin. You think about the implications of this for your life as a believer. It means that your life will be very different as the result of knowing Christ personally. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And again, keep in mind what John is not saying here. He is not saying that we will not fail from time to time because we will. But we know that we have an advocate. This is not implying that once you come to Christ, you will never sin. But one thing is for sure, we will not persist in unrepentant patterns of sin because there will be evidence that the power of sin has been broken in your life. Why? Because he came to take away sin. And no one who abides in him and who's found in him keeps on sinning, as in habitual persistence. So I ask you this question just by way of just some application here. How does this impact your relationships? When you get into relational disagreements with other people, you retreat into your corner and refuse to talk to another person and persist in your own pride. Listen to me. If you're in Jesus Christ, the Bible says no one who abides in him will keep on sinning. Humility and the life of God in me at some point is going to bring me to cross that line and try to start some kind of negotiation process with the other person. Think about how this ought to be applied in the context of our marriage relationships and all of our interpersonal relationships. Purity of mind and purity of body and all of that. Mm. But you know, the good news is you've not been left alone in that process. As a believer, the Spirit of God has come to live within you and empower your obedience. 
You've got an advocate. You've got the inner witness of the Spirit. You've got the helper, the resident helper as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not to say that obedience is easy because it's often not, but let me tell you, there's joy in obedience to the Master, isn't there? Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? My invitation to you this morning is simple. Number one, if you have never by faith repented of your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're here this morning or whether you're watching online, what's keeping you from coming to Christ today? Right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, turn from the sin and place your faith and trust in Christ because he came to take away your sin. He came for the purpose of destroying the works of the evil one, and that's something we'll look at later on. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I realize I'm speaking mostly to believers this morning. How does the truth of what John is saying here, how does this really lead you to maybe take up spiritual inventory in your life? To know that the person who, no one who abides in him will keep on sinning. There's some things right now in your life that maybe the Holy Spirit's convicted you of. Maybe some issues that are ongoing that need resolution. Yield to Christ and his lordship. Rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Surrender your marriage to the Lord Jesus relationship between parents and children surrender that to the Lord Jesus and you know something knowing that sin is so serious but that Christ is so wonderful and his sacrifice so precious this really frees me up to be compassionate in my dealings with people especially those who don't know God a broken lost world that doesn't know that it's lost how will we ever get through in terms of our witness well it's, got, it's not by retreating into our corner and yelling at each other across the room. It's through reaching out in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel and the love of God and relying upon the Holy Spirit of God to open the eyes of blind sinners as to the nature of their need. And you know what? That's what the gospel trumpet does. The power is in the message of the gospel and the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that we will not be opposed because we will. That message will be opposed. Satan doesn't want to seed any ground. But the reason that the Son of God appeared was to take away sins. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in him we are more than conquerors. So Lord, thank you for your word. May you take these truths, seal them up in our hearts and lives, and may they go to work in our lives for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.